Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, welcome back to The Game Podcast. I am Hugh Wisencroft alongside Jonathan Northcroft, Gregor Robertson and Tom Clark today looking back at the week that was in the EFL Cup and ahead to some massive games in the Premier League. But let's start with the Carabao Cup and Newcastle United, who reached the League Cup semis with a 2-0 win over Leicester in front of a delighted St. James's Park. Now, the last time Newcastle reached any final was the FA Cup back in 1999. Their last trophy was the 1969 Intercities Fairs Cup. I don't even know what that might correlate to today. And you've got to go back to 1955 for their last domestic success. That was the FA Cup. They've only reached the League Cup final once. And they lost that. That was in 1976. So a quick reminder to everyone that keeps describing them as a sleeping giant. Uh, Not quite. This is actually quite an achievement for Newcastle United and something very rare. So something to savour for the vast majority of Newcastle fans. They are already being taken on that intended journey of the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia. So congratulations to them. Great for Eddie Howe as well, Jonathan Northcroft. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, Eddie Howe's surpassing, I think, expectations. Yes, they've got the backing. Yeah, they've got they've got incredible might, but there's still a feeling they haven't really flexed that financially yet. And that a lot of this is down to really good coaching, really good team building. What you see from Newcastle, whatever the competition, whatever the game, is the same intensity, the same patterns. And they're just very, very difficult to play against. They remind me of the Blackburn team, I think, of the mid-90s, which wasn't the most attractive side, but it wasn't an ugly side either. It was just incredibly efficient and functional, and they've got that they've got that feel to them. And yeah, this is a big deal for their fans being in a cup semi-final. You know, we'll, 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 we'll keep talking about parallels between their journey and cities. It's another thing that reminds me of of City in that you know, in the early days of of, of their journey and with Abu Dhabi. Their fans were so excited about winning domestic cups, and that provided the platform for what they they went on and did later. So yeah, another great night and another step in the um, in the kind of stamp forward for world dominance, I suppose. Yeah, they are going places, Newcastle United, but they're doing it in a way that I think their fans absolutely love as well. Because you see, Big Dan Byrne scoring that goal, first goal for the club he supported as a boy. Post-match celebration to delight as well. Want to see him out on the dance floor very, very soon. But um, those storylines kind of go against the grain of the negativity that's built by the ownership group. You know, if you can get someone who is local, who, who went 
and, and spoke about, you know, being in the Gallagher end and, and watching Newcastle United as a boy, scoring that first goal for that club and what it means to him and his family watching on, that in many ways keeps fans connected to the football club that they've always known rather than the one that might develop in the next few years. That's important too, Tom Clark. It is. The only problem is you're going to have to teach the likes of Bruno Guimaraes and the rest of the signings they're going to make from now on about you know Newcastle history because I don't know whether there's going to be many more Dan Burns being brought into Newcastle. You're absolutely right. And and the thing is as well, you, you talked about the way Newcastle want to play. The other thing that Newcastle fans have wanted as well as success is to be dominant, particularly in home games, and they were in this game. I know you can talk about form, but basically if you were looking at the team's um, and some of the players, Newcastle and Leicester, not too far off. I think if you were talking on paper, purely on paper, not on form. And Newcastle absolutely dominated that game, which is mm. one of the reasons Dan Burns scored, because it was that type of a game where a home team were dominant so much that you've got a defender marauding forward and going, actually, I'm going to dribble past him. Come on, I'm going to have a crack here. Oh, my God, I've scored. It was one of those games which produced one of those goals. Like The stats were incredible. Nine shots on goal, 22 shots in total. Leicester completely parking the bus basically and trying to cling on which that is another thing that Newcastle fans would have wanted and so they're not just performing in these games against big teams but they're also doing it in a dominant fashion against teams that their fans would be desperate for them to show that kind of uh, commanding performance against Gregor it would be special for Newcastle United to, to lift this trophy do they almost need it to uh, to send that message out to potential new signings, to the club as a whole, that they're going to forge a, a winning culture in the coming years? I don't think so. Not this early in, in the in the whole project. Um, what would it mean if they did do it then? It would be enormous. I mean, you can already see the the transformation in the atmosphere in, in, inside St James's Park and like the way that the players are feeding off that. It was a kind of frenzied atmosphere at the start. Mm. They ran all over Leicester. You know, that's the thing we talk we talk about. Said it so many times. The names on the sheet of paper on the team sheet, you go, they shouldn't be achieving what they're achieving, and a lot of that is down to energy and and commitment as well. So, and that you know is credit to Eddie Howe. So, even if they make it to Wembley, you know that would be a momentous occasion for for Newcastle fans. It's kind of a glimpse of what of what the future is going to hold. Let's be honest. Mm. Uh, you know, competing for trophies, competing for silverware. Uh, but I still think they're obviously way ahead of schedule here and it's not something that they have to do right now this year. It's It would be an enormous marker, but they're just so they're so far ahead of schedule. It's it's ridiculous. As Johnny says, it's, this is you know what Eddie Howe is achieving. It's easy to be cynical about it all, but what Eddie Howe has done so far is remarkable. And having drawn Southampton in the semi-finals, I think Newcastle will feel very confident that they can make it through to Wembley, uh, Manchester United in the other game as well, taking on Nottingham Forest, will feel like they too will reach the final. So we could see a pretty special, uh, meaningful EFL Cup final this year. Um, but then again, I don't want to say that the other sides won't make it because they've got every chance. Southampton, let's talk about them. All right, maybe not every chance, but a chance. You've got to be in it to win it. Um, Nathan Jones, their boss, got an important result for all of those that was sort of screaming, you don't know what you're doing at the end of their recent games because he beat Pep Guardiola's Manchester City. Not an easy feat at all. Um, Two goals to nil. There was far more energy and structure from Southampton in this one. Um, Did did you watch it? Did you keep an eye on it last night? What did you think? I thought they were brilliant and particularly in much the same way as Newcastle, the way they started. So on the front foot, so much energy. Look, we know that City were miles off it 
and like any team that beats City are going to need that to a certain extent but Southampton deserve great credit the way for the way they started I thought so on the front foot so much energy a lot of kind of pressing triggers they were you know a City were trying to build up they weren't just parking the bus they were pushing the pressing high and trying to win the ball back inside uh, City's defensive third and, and I thought the goals were great although there were errors in the build up from City it was a lovely finish from uh, from from Mara Sekou Mara and the second one uh, the way that Lavia collected the ball and kind of took it on the half turn yeah. a little drag back that was brilliant he's you know they, they've missed him undoubtedly he's He's a player, and he's a kind of example of the risk and reward of this this whole model. There are going to be some players who are going to they might they might take a while to deal with the physicality of the Premier League week in week out, but they're undoubted talents, and there are going to be some who who kind of take more time to bed in. But he was he was outstanding, and and uh, and it was a although the goalkeeper off the line was a bit of a you know it was a bit of a, a bit of a blunder. I think it was Massive. a great finish. It was a great finish, though. It was, yeah, it was. But I mean, come on. Yeah, what's he doing? I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I don't think he or Sergio Gomez are going to be playing for Pep Guardiola for a while, are they? That that smacked yeah. of kind of two players given oh, a Gomez chance. Gomez was great last last week. Yeah, it was. But if that, that pass for the first goal, yeah, yeah. That, no pass has smacked more of arrogance of we're going to beat these eventually. Well, 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 yeah. Oh, okay. come it, on! It was a lazy, lazy. It was ball, a sideways ball, ball. But I think a lot of teams would be in retreat against Manchester City in possession dropping deeper and deeper and the fact that a full back was it the right back for mm. uh, Southampton was basically on the front foot ready to charge forward and intercept that ball I don't know I quite, reckon I could have got quite, up in my living room and picked up that ball it was so <laughs> so slow quite high up the pitch as well on the halfway line I just just a little bit of intent there from Southampton that I thought was a positive I'm trying to you know Trying to be more positive in 2023, you know what I'm like. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just still furious that Southampton shouldn't even be in this competition. We they barely scraped past one of the other great cities in this competition <laughs> earlier in the round by just beating Lincoln. So, you know, I'm st- I've still not let that go. Um, Jonathan, it was a, a big boost for Nathan Jones. I've got to say, in terms of the list of um, managers responding to outside voices, this is one of my favourites because, you know, sometimes there's a, a club legend might point the finger at a manager... You know, maybe an ex-manager of the club has something to say. The fans, whoever it might be, you know, sometimes a manager goes into their post-match press conference and they want to, you know, maybe point the finger at a journalist. You said this about me. Um, Having to respond to the Haven't and Waterlooville boss um, (laughs) was something special from Nathan Jones, which I particularly enjoyed. I mean, listen, he didn't go, yeah, I don't listen to any of the outside noise. No, I do. I listen to BBC Radio Solon and I cannot believe what the Haven and Waterlooville manager said about me. And I, I thought it was one of those where I was like, yeah, he's still here. He's still here, isn't he? He's, he, he, hasn't, he hasn't been deterred by the glitz and glamour of the Premier League. Who cares about beating Pep Guardiola? You, Haven and Waterlooville boss, I, I want a word with you. That's what I enjoyed about Nathan Jones. Listen, that energy, that spiky character. Um, it was important for him to get a win like this. Yeah, he's a, he's a pugnacious sort of guy. Uh, I was at the EFL Awards last year. And he, he was, I think, he was manager of the year, or championship manager of the year. And he's one of them that he, it wasn't. It wasn't quite a father Ted sort of speech, but it was getting there where he he sort of used the the forum to to kind of uh, make a few spiky points. And I, met, I sat down with um, Kieran in Dewsbury Hall last year, and he talked about his loan spell at Luton, and basically raved about Nathan Jones, what a special coach he is, the way he he signed Dewsbury Hall when he was wanted by a lot of championship clubs when he was going on loan from Leicester, and and signed him by sort of met him at a service station, presented this dossier, and talked Dewsbury Hall about 
you know, here's all the things you do well, but here's all the things you've done badly. And he was talking about under 23 games that he'd seen him in, gave him a PowerPoint, but basically convinced him uh, there and then to to sign. And, and Jusby Hall said, from that point onwards, he was on me all the time to improve this detail, that detail, a sort of special guy. So I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased that it's starting. It seems like it's starting to work at Southampton after such a bad start. He did some interesting things last night. I mean, he had Lyanko playing at right back, which really worked. What performance he put in! Um, you know, Ward Prowse had this kind of really attacking role. He had he had Armstrong on the left. As Gregor said, the pressing triggers were spot on. I mean, they they, they swarmed City at times. They really showed them no respect at all uh, in in a good way and kind of knocked them off their stride. And it was it's a sensational performance. Lots of young players. Lavia was brilliant. Diallo, who's, who's quite young, was was great alongside him and. They have got something there, Southampton. They have recruited a lot of good young players. The model does have something about it. It's just, can they retrieve their Premier League position? I'm not, still not sure about that, but this, what this does is gives them an incredible platform now to, and they've got a good fixture at the weekend that they could win to get back in the in the race to survive, I suppose. It's true. When you look at like a lot of these individuals in, you know, in isolation, I think Salisu has been really impressive at period, in periods of the season. Mm. Bella Kotchup has as well. Yeah. We all know Bazunu is going to be a great goalkeeper and he's had a bit of a difficult time. He played brilliant last night once when he came out to kind of cut out uh, De Bruyne's mm. ball across the box. Sekumara, remember at the start of the season, that kind of no-look mm. through ball. Do you remember? <laughs> Who was that against? <laughs> I can't remember. But early in the season we thought, wow, what a player this is. And then he kind of disappeared. And that was a beautifully kind of composed sort of natural swept you know finished oh, swept into the into the corner finish, yeah. so the you know we, we, as we say lavia so these players like, like i say there'll be some who will take more and more more time to kind of to see the be- the best of them there'll be some who we might never see the best of but they need they need maybe 3 4 5 of them to kind of step up now in the second half of the se- of the season and if they do then i think they've got yeah. a bit of a chance yeah the question is i mean look it's a big if uh, coming on later down the season if it happens but if they got relegated you wonder how many of those young talents who are showing something already would get picked off by other clubs would they end up you know all that good recruitment work that they've done go to waste or would they just keep them on the championship and actually build some confidence and some style and, and go back up i mean no Southampton fan wants to think about that, so we'll leave that until the end of the season. But if they are going to stave off relegation this weekend, massively important for them. Both clubs in the relegation zone, six straight Premier League defeats for the Saints. Um, so you feel it, it maybe means more for them. That being said, the Everton owner Farhad Moshiri has given Frank Lampard the dreaded faith of the board this week in an open letter to fans. His full support and following that, within about two weeks, you usually get fired, don't you? So, uh, big pressure on Everton as well this weekend. It's a huge, huge game. I know we're going to talk about some of the exciting games at the top of the table, but this is this is the game of the weekend for me because I think particularly with that Southampton result, which, as fantastic as it was, those young players and the way they played is primed to play at home against a team like Manchester City who have maybe rotated a little bit. I'm not necessarily sure it's primed to play Everton at home. Mm. And Everton, who... It, when they've been good this season under Frank Lampard, have been very solid and haven't conceded many goals, haven't scored many. And they've obviously gone for Lampard again, trying to do what he did well last season, which is the 12th man effect of Goodison Park, which I wouldn't be surprised. Everton fans are incredibly loyal. 
and can create a brilliant and hostile atmosphere for away teams. So it'll be interesting to see how those young players who Johnny and Gregor have quite rightly praised take on this kind of a game where they'll have the crowd on their back and Everton probably won't play anything like Manchester City in terms of attacking intent. Um, it might be quite niggly. But if those Southampton players can show the confidence that they, they will no doubt have from that uh, City win, they could take the game to Everton and we could see something similar to the Brighton game in that similar types of styles, attacking intent, pressing, fast-moving attacks going forward. So it, it'll probably be down to those Southampton players and whether, as Gregor says, they can step up. But it's it's an absolutely huge game for Everton. And again, they need their experienced players to step up as well and they've been poor in recent weeks. The one, one thing is that... Nathan Jones has shown that he can be flexible in the way that he, he's, he's playing. I, mean, I, I was at the Forest game, and one of the questions directed at him afterwards by the local media was like, they counted, well, they obviously looked at the stats and saw how many long balls there were. And there's been a, real, a lot of complaints about the, the style of play as well. Nathan Jones, your football is bleep. <laughs> you know, that's been one of the songs. And this was a, ma- like, you know, a marked change. And actually, at Luton, it's kind of, in his early days, in his first tenure, he played really expansively and a lot of sweeping, sweeping moves and brilliant goals and then last season when they got into the to the playoffs they were far more kind of direct and you know, a little bit more attritional I'm not I'm not, not so sure actually Tom that it's going to be quite the same approach I think possibly they will ask Everton to be the ones to make the run in you know they might they might be the, one, the team to sit in again a little bit more it can be a chess match then nil-nil is what you're saying uh, well, <laughs> well look they've been they have been quite tough to watch in, in his previous games, which has been one of the bugbears of the, the supporters, this was a as I say, this was a big change, and they saw they, you know they knew who the opposition were, they they know how they were going to play, and they saw an opportunity to to try and swarm them at home. When they're going away to Goodison Park, a team under pressure, a team whose fans are going to do a sitting after the game as like a as a protest, uh, you know, big issues there, big problems. It might be that you ask them to come to come to you what you got, and they try and play on the break. They've still got you know they've got Armstrong. Mara Gineppo if they're playing players with pace I, I wouldn't be surprised to see that see that be the game plan Johnny do you think do, do you think that Frank Lampard can afford to lose this weekend I don't think he can actually and it's the start of a really difficult run of fixtures for them because it's West Ham next week and then they go into Arsenal and, and, and Liverpool and it's, it's such a, it's such a fragile situation now at Everton the thing that caught my attention in um Mercedes vote of confidence for Lampard was a weird line um, in the sort of the writing around it. So, you know, that's come from sort of briefings, which was an improved performance against Manchester United in the cup. So now we seem to be in a position where he's hanging on to his job by doing slightly better in one defeat than in another defeat. And that, that, that can't be sustained for, for too long. They're in such trouble that I don't see how certainly, certainly if they lost the, Southampton and then then lost to West Ham. I think that would be it. But I think even this even a defeat now would would be really really difficult to to come back from. You know, you look you look look at the bottom. Wolves under Lopetegui have now got a real chance of surviving. He's a really good manager. They've got momentum. Don't think West Ham are going to be in trouble. Forest have got momentum now. And if Southampton sort of reawaken from an Everton perspective, you're left then thinking who's going to finish beneath us as things stand. The thing that might be keeping Frank in his job more than anything is 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 the financial situation. I don't get the sense Everton have actually got 
the resources to to back a new manager and make a big change that way. And and I suppose he has what what he's done really well is connect with the the supporters and galvanise them and, and and keep them on side. Which is why they're protesting more about Bill Kenwright and and Baxendale and and the board than they are about about him. And quite honestly, it's such a mess at that club. It's also hard to tell if he's done a good job or a bad job, honestly, because of where Everton are. But that aside, it's usually the manager that pays when when a team's in this sort of position. And as I say, it's so fragile now that to answer your question, Hugh, I don't I don't think he will survive a defeat against Southampton. No, we will react to that on Monday. We'll see exactly how that game goes. Massive one towards the bottom of the table. We'll talk about Manchester United in a few moments' time. Not much to say about their win over Charlton, but a big game coming up in the Premier League. But just to round off. The Carabao Cup, Gregor, your former team, Nottingham Forest, are through to the semi-final. Positivity once again being built by Steve Cooper. They did it on penalties against Wolves. How big is it for Forest? Massive. You know, I think it's the first semi-final in 31 years. League Cup's a you know a competition that's got a, mm. you know Forest have got a great history with in Brian Clough's time. With every passing week, it seems more and more like you know it underlines more and more what an outstanding job Steve Cooper's doing. And I still think it's despite. The circumstances in which he's working. So Dane Murphy leaving leaving the club, the, the former CEO. As far as I understand, he was a bit of a, an appointment to kind of appease the supporters to make it look like they were making joined up decisions in recruitment, and he never really had much authority at all. So I still worry about. And I'm not. I don't want to bring doom and gloom after a brilliant performance. I think he's doing an outstanding job, despite the the circumstances he's working in. And I, you know, be interested to see what happens in the rest of January. But what job he's doing. The, the resolute kind of foundation they have now as a team and the front three, whoever they are, offer such a threat now. They've got real pace. They've always got someone with a bit of craft, usually in Gibbs White as the number 10. But Scarpa, I think, was the, was the player who, was, who played that yesterday. Absolutely, they've got they've got a platform to, to move forward now and, and it's uh, it's exciting times for Forest fans after, uh, you know, more than two decades of, of, of exactly the opposite. Let's discuss Manchester City and Manchester United in more detail. As we know, Manchester United cruised past Charlton Athletic 3-0. Another couple of goals from Marcus Rashford at Old Trafford. And of course, Manchester City knocked out by Southampton. But United welcomed City, knowing a win would see them move one point behind City in second place. Only one defeat in 23 in all competitions for Manchester United. Four straight Premier League wins. City have, of course, beaten Chelsea twice in the past week, but they will need to elevate their performance level. All their title hopes could fade in this next period because in the next month they face Arsenal in league and cup. They face Spurs twice in the league. And, of course, United. It all ramps up with United on Saturday. But let's start with Manchester United, shall we, Tom? Are they ready to go toe-to-toe with Manchester City? In this game or in a grander sense? (laughs) You can answer both. Uh, In a grander sense, no, not yet. I have been impressed by Eric Ten Hag and what Manchester United have done. I think Marcus Rashford's form is superb, as you mentioned. It's amazing to think that, um, I think it was maybe October time on this podcast, we were talking about should he go to the World Cup and now there's lots of retrospective thinking about why didn't he start against France? He could have been our Mbappe and all that kind of stuff. So Eric Ten Hag deserves great credit for what he's done with him in terms of management. I think in a grander sense, they're still a long way off. But 
there's huge positives because going into this game, I was listening to your um, very eloquent um, build-up there, Hugh. Who, who would have thought that going into a Manchester derby, you would have been saying Manchester City need to put elevate their performance from wins against Chelsea to take on Manchester United? That in itself says a lot about what Ten Hag has done with United. I, if I'm being very critical perhaps and I think United fans should be because we've seen a lot over the last few years little hopes little fits and starts I don't think they're necessarily performing any better right now than they have under the high points of say Solskjaer I don't think they're anywhere near beyond that they're not showing me anything tactically yet the little glimmers are there the little passing moves out from the back and things like that Casemiro has been a great introduction so yeah, it'll be these games for me. I, but I, but to try and answer your question in a grander sense, they're not ready to go toe to toe. In in this in this sense, in this game in isolation, then yeah, I think they are, and I'm really excited to see what they can put in because I think it will be a significantly better performance than the one they put in at the Etihad earlier in the season. I think a lot of people would argue that Manchester United are a lot better than those days. Jonathan Northcroft, your view? They are. I mean, what I'm looking for on Saturday, and I'm going to the game is something I haven't seen from Manchester United in one of these derbies for, I don't know what, nearly eight, nine years, which is actually seeking to dominate a match, seeking to be proactive. Not Maybe not dominating Manchester City. No one dominates Man City, but seeking to be proactive. I think that'll be the real test as to where they are. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, probably the greatest manager of modern times, of course, <laughs> um, who Ten Hag's only just equaled his eight-game uh, winning streak. I mean, he his times against Man City were, were on the counter-attack and so were Jose Mourinho's. But United actually do feel ready now to at least go, if not quite toe-to-toe, you know, do what Liverpool might be able to do against Man City and play in their half a bit and impose some of their own patterns. So I'll be really interested to see Ten Hag's approach because, of course, he tried that in the first derby and, and it, was, it was embarrassing. But it's been a fantastic two or three months for United and for him as a manager, there's been there hasn't been a misstep. You see a team with structure patterns now, with individual players with with real belief, and you also see so much capacity for the team to to still improve. And I think there's still a sense that there's lowered expectations, so it all still feels a bit like a free hit this season for Ten Hag. I'm just I'm really excited about the game for the reasons I said. It, it feels like it'll be a different you know a different derby. I'll be going there wondering how it's going to unfold rather than knowing what the pattern of the game is going to be like in advance. And of course, United have got a decent chance. In relation to yeah. the point you were just making, then, and it's a really yeah. interesting one. James and I were discussing it in the office about those kind of patterns of what type of United mm. have performed in derbies, either the park the bus or the play on the counter. Do mm. you think? For United fans and in you know in your position, having watched them so much over the Fergie years and things, do you think say a two-two draw in which they do, to use Hugh's phrase, go toe to toe, would be almost as important as say nicking a two-one win with Rash two goals from Rashford on the counter? I, I do actually. I, I even think they would tolerate a defeat if it was if it was that kind of performance. And I, I think back to Arsenal against Man City last year on either New Year's Day or Hogmanay. And City won the game 2-1, I don't know if you remember, at the Emirates. Yeah. It was a funny game with the VAR decisions. But Arsenal, at different points, dominated City and, and, and imposed themselves. And the mood at the Emirates that day, I've almost never seen it like that for a, a team being beaten. There was there was a sort of joy there, a feeling of like, wow, we've arrived back at the top here. 
And I think United fans are looking for something like that. I think they would they would accept a narrow defeat if it was Manchester United that they know and, and want to see um, taking on Man City. No holds barred. No. I mean, I, 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 <laughs> no, Johnny, Johnny, I could hear you talking, and I was looking across the studio at Hugh, going, "Go on, Hugh, go no, on." Because it's such on. a big derby, there's no acceptable defeat. I mean, is there? I mean, that's the word that you used. That's the only thing that I, I kind of disagreed with. I mean, yeah, you would you would feel more positive, you know, in, in terms of the future if Manchester United are able to. Like I say, I've always said, you know, I, I want Manchester United to return to those great days of winning the biggest competitions. What it takes to do that, in my opinion, is the ability to control the tempo of football matches, to control the territory in football matches, to create clear-cut goal-scoring opportunities. I've always said this to you guys. I don't think Manchester United are going to be able to do that against the very best sides in football. Can they do it more often? Can they improve? Yes, they can. In terms of what you said, I kind of agree with it a little bit in that are Manchester United a lot be- a lot better than Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? Maybe not, but um, I do think they are a much more solid side. They are capable of, of playing in the opposition's half for the entire game. They don't have to play virtually always, regardless of the opposition, on the counter-attack. But I also think Eric Ten Hag just has better players. You know, you watch a lot of their games. Christian Eriksen is sitting there alongside Casemiro, and actually defensively, He's, he's looking around and he's like, what do I do in this area of the pitch? He doesn't really know. But when he's got the ball, it doesn't matter if he's playing really right back or, you know, see what I mean, or centre back or whatever, you know, in possession, he's incredibly comfortable. He pulls strings from deeper. He could have played as a number 10 for Manchester United. But actually, you look at the quality there and you think, wow, not even wow. You're just like, oh my God, it's been so long. It's been so long since we had a player that wanted to put their foot on the ball. Casemiro does the same thing. I think he surprised a lot of people in, in who haven't seen him a lot in Spain by the amount he wants to pass the ball, get on it and play it. But ultimately, he's just a much better player. I mean, if you watch the EFL Cup games, you're watching Fred and McTominay, with all due respect, there is a golf in class there that he never had Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I mean, if he had had players of that quality in that area of the pitch in particular, maybe he'd still be Manchester United manager. Maybe he could have played a different way. So they're much more solid, but again, Martinez in defence makes a big difference. There's a Varane in central defence for Manchester United. There is, okay, an increased intensity. I think that's come from Eric Ten Hag. Maybe he isn't letting the players get away with as much as Ole Gunnar Solskjaer maybe did as an ex-Manchester United player who maybe as well had that perception of being maybe fortunate to be in the role, maybe imposter syndrome, thinking everyone kind of thinks I shouldn't be here, so let me just you know, manage my way through this as easy as possible, which means I'm not going to create loads of enemies in the changing room. I'm going to let the players like me. Maybe they'll go out there and play for me. Eric Ten Hag isn't like that. He clearly doesn't really care if the players like him or not. It would be great, but he, you know, he's already shown us that he's he's willing to be a disciplinarian. So there are changes at Manchester United. In terms of their football, okay, they're, they're, I think they are better, but I know what you mean by not being a lot better than Ole Gunnar Solskjaer because for me it's the structure defensively I don't feel immediately worried that Manchester United are going to concede goals that being said it's still Manchester City they've still got Erling Haaland up front they haven't been at their brilliant breast I'm kind of like unimpressed by Manchester City so far this season in that they're kind of sleepwalking towards second in the Premier League 
they kind of know that they're good, but they don't want to, it doesn't seem to be that aggressive, we're going to go out and win the title, we're going to wrestle it back into our hands. It's just kind of, oh, if we play our game, we'll, we'll eventually win, Arsenal will slip up and we'll win the title. Like, I don't see an aggressive chaser at this point in time, Gregor, and that is a concern, not for me, for City fans. <laughs> yeah, kind of strange comments from, from Pep afterwards last night, like, I, I, I kind of saw this coming before the game. It's the kind of thing my dad says at a Lincoln game, which is never, it's not a good thing for Pep Guardiola. You know, he sits there and goes, oh, I knew that was going in, you know, from a 30-yard shot. And when Pep's sounding like my dad, it's a worry for him. <laughs> well, you just like to think he might have, you know, tried to do something about it as well. That's the <clears throat> that's the fear. Also, looking, and they've scored five goals in the last seven away games. Three of them were against Leeds. Like that, That's unusual for City, absolutely. But, like, we doubted them so many times, I just always think that they're on the brink and very capable of going on a run of 14 wins in a row or something stupid. Look, the, the one thing about... Just I, I, don't, I don't think this team is. I think they are. I, I, undoubtedly, I think they are. I, I just don't see it. I mean, they are if they're at their absolute best. Sorry, let me just clarify that. But they're not at their absolute best. I mean, unless No, they, but they've been not at their unless, absolute best and then gone on a 14-game winning run yeah, before. But, so I mean, it's just always possible. But when and, are they going to go up the two or, th- two or three gears I think they need at this point in time to catch Arsenal? I don't know. Let's hope for you. Your sake is not this weekend. <laughs> Look, the one thing going back to Man United as quickly is that how long how long ago does the the six three battering they got at the hands of City feel mm-hmm. now? And like as you know, you referenced their one defeat in how many twenty odd something games? They've won fifteen of the, of those of the eighteen games since then. So you know, I still feel that United's progress is fragile. And but then when you look at that run of results, you can think, no, I mean this is pretty, it's pretty solid, pretty resolute. I just think that I'm thinking back to that game. Malassia was like looked like a little rabbit in the headlights. Dallo, although he's improved enormously this season, he looked scared. He looked not you know not quite ready for a game of that size. And as you see, McTominay in the middle of the park had a bit of a shocker. But Casemiro's made a huge difference. It's like you have a player of enormous authority. And like, you know, he's so commanding in the middle of the pitch now. In both regards, being on the ball and as a sort of defensive pillar. So, you know, he wasn't in, he wasn't in the starting line, starting lineup in the last game. It makes a huge difference. And well, I still think there is something fragile about it. I think he's he's the one the one player who's who's made a massive massive impact at United. Uh, Johnny Guardiola, ahead of the EFL Cup game against Southampton, said mm. that basically he wanted to arrive against United with the average of minutes in the legs of the players quite similar. He wanted to keep some of his best players fresh because he said, I have a few ideas, thoughts, ridiculous (laughs) ones against United. He's going to do it again, isn't he? He's overthinking it. He's (laughs) overthinking it. I mean, what, what, what ridiculous ideas does he need to beat Manchester United? (laughs) I know. I, I love that comment. The mind, the mind boggled, but actually if he did have some ludicrous thoughts, Maybe the Southampton performance actually concentrates his mind and thinks he needs to go back to basics. And City actually looked like a team in need of basic Man City values again because they haven't just that they haven't been that that fluid, mechanical, Guardiola functioning unit for quite some time. I don't think so. He needs to go back to that. But then the artist in him, I suppose, might think, oh, I, I don't know what could it what. What could it be? Haaland at left back, uh, Rico Lewis up front. It's going to be Edison taking the set pieces. Finally, this is <laughs> this is this. That's what <laughs> I took from amazing. it. Finally, yeah, 
90th minute. Johnny, you're going to see it 2 2. Two teams going head to head. City are going to get a penalty. Up steps the keeper. That's that's what it's going to be. I'm believing Pep. I I think as it's a big derby weekend, (laughs) it's a big derby weekend. We've got to bring the predictions back for this one. Mm. Greg, Greg has been sat there <laughs> knowing this was coming I've been looking at him it's like when you're in school with your mates and you're like the teacher's going to ask you a question you don't want it in a minute and you, you know it's coming uh, I think um, United will get something from this game sod it United will win why not <laughs> Gregor Robertson draw Ooh. Do you, do you, when you say United will get something you mean I, I, th- I, think, you know, I think United will put in the kind of performance that Johnny wants I think if you get your Sunday Times you'll read Jonathan Northcroft saying this was this was a yeah, moment yeah I think it'll be an uplift in Man United draw yeah I okay. think, I think okay. you'll get that you know what I mean Johnny Man United draw That's yeah yeah I'm, 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 I, 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 I think it'll be that way as well and I, I enjoyed Tom's um, get something from this game cliche that was he should be a league one manager Tom I actually, I actually then went for the win so you know you're all being very kind <laughs> to all right. Uh, anyway, we will react to that on Monday. Remember, if you're enjoying the game podcast, hit the notification button, the little bell, make sure you're subscribed. You can also uh, check us out uh, at thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. More to come. We'll be discussing the North London Derby next and the legacy of Gareth Bale. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Well, Manchester City fans are going to have a close eye on events at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium on Sunday because it's North London derby time. Spurs, who've taken 10 points from the last 24 available, versus Arsenal, who currently have a five-point lead at the top. Now, you hear Spurs fans that are desperately worried ahead of this game, some even thinking they're going to get smashed. And then you talk to the Arsenal fans, and they think a derby's going to bring out the best in Tottenham, and that it's going to derail their title hopes. I mean, two sets of fragile football supporters going into a North London derby, nail-biter hopefully on the way. Who Who is this a bigger game for, Gregor? I mean, it's got to be Arsenal. As much as Spurs could desperately do with, with a win in this game, Arsenal are on the brink of, you know, a historical season by their, by the, you know, in recent history. And it, it could derail them. If, you know, if it, this could be a big weekend if Manchester City defy our predictions and, and uh, run all over Man United in the, in, on Saturday, then the, you know, the gap could be narrowed. So it's got to be for, for Arsenal. And we speak, keep speaking about Nketiah being someone who's got to step up, step up, and he scored, I think he scored seven goals now since, since Jesus has been out. He's got another two against Oxford. This is a big test for him now. This is, it's a big game. Can he kind of step up and be the man that they can rely upon to get the goals and, you know, in the next couple of months? But otherwise, it's you know Spurs. I think we always see it when when these two sides meet. And since Conte's been the manager, Spurs will try and make it a kind of fractious battle. And what we've seen from Arsenal is that they're ready to stand up to that now. So Kane's on the brink of a record as well. There's another little underlying storyline. So, but I, I, undoubtedly, it's a, it's a more important game for Arsenal. Uh, that's actually the words I've got on my notes. I've gone. Where's this game going to be won and lost? And I've just put in brackets the battle. <laughs> because you can't I, have always doing this, particularly since yeah. Conte's gone there. 
you know, and there have been some pretty feisty ones over the years too. But Conte's they almost wanted to be disruptors, particularly against a team that are, that are playing so well, you know, playing as well as Arsenal. So, yeah, I think they'll look to make it. A, they will look to make it a scrap. Yeah, and that will be in their favour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to enjoy the scrap Sunday afternoon. I think it has to be if you're if, from the Tottenham perspective. You're not going to outplay Arsenal at this point in time. We just haven't seen that fluency from Tottenham really all season and Arsenal have had it in spades yeah okay uh, you know again the fans I mentioned you speak to them they're like well it's a derby form goes out the window you know one of those but there's levels at this point in time Arsenal are a cut above actually and I think Tottenham will find it very very difficult to hang in this game unless they drag Arsenal into a fight you know one of those where it's a boxing match and, and one of them is just a beautiful boxer technique art and and you know the the Marvin Hagler the the, the one where they go oh well, he just wants a scrap you know just wants a scrap don't let him in close he just wants a scrap he wants to drag you into a street fight you know one of those Hagler Hearns I think and that, who wins Marvin Hagler I think this podcast should be called Who Wants It shouldn't it <laughs> we talked to, Who Wants It come on Who Wants It because I think we talked about Manchester City not being very good we talked about can Manchester United step up now we talked about nervous Arsenal and Tottenham fans Who Wants It lads. And I, I think Greg, you both make a very well, good point, but I, I do wonder to to offer a slight counter bit of analysis. I do think the game could also be won and lost in midfield. And yes, you can say that's where the scraps might happen. But without Jesus, that Arsenal midfield with Odegaard and you know the creative players becomes even more important. And that is where I think Tottenham are weakest under Conte. That central midfield area. You've got the attackers. Kane looks on good form. That central area. Where, can those Arsenal players? create enough mm. break break the lines maybe break forward into attacking areas um, in and around Nketiah or can Tottenham get hold of the ball enough because Tottenham can't just give it back to Arsenal I don't think that will work Arsenal have shown this season they go up the levels if you sit in and Tottenham did this at the Emirates as well they sat in and what happened like Ben White was on the edge of the mm. box knocking the ball to Thomas Partey the defensive midfielder ping one in the top corner they'll come at you they'll keep coming and then Arteta switched it and told Ben White, you bomb on, bomb on, make it a six front line. They'll keep coming and coming, won't they, Johnny? They will. And, and actually, Conte's approach has been limited against the big teams. I think we've beaten any of the big teams this year. And it smacks of a bit of what started happening to Jose Mourinho when that reductive approach just stopped working against the better sides. And it makes you wonder whether you know football's evolved away from that type of management. And I, I, I think Arsenal would, It'd be a big mistake for them to see this as a battle. They should just see this as a football contest and themselves as a superior football team. And of course, they've got a match. Tottenham's intensity, but they've got to play cleverer than that. And if you think about them losing last year in this fixture that condemned them to be outside the Champions League places, I mean, they, they gave away an early penalty. They had a man sent off. They allowed themselves to be caught up in it all. Arteta went mad in the touchline about a few decisions. And from an Arsenal perspective, this has got to be serenity. This has got to be about playing the football. Of course, not being out for or, or out-pressed or whatever, but just remembering, as you say, Tom, superior resources in midfield, brilliantly functioning attack at the moment, even with Nketiah in, much stronger than the team that went to the Tottenham Stadium last year. And also a home team that the mood among fans is... is Febrile at the moment. There's there's this discontent about where it's going under Conte, and if they if Arsenal can score, then you get the the negativity around the the home fans in the stadium. So I think that's how Arsenal got to be looking at it. 
play the football and, and they'll win. I mean, I, I got concerns over most of the Tottenham team, to be honest. Their defence against, but in the odd good performance, sometimes it clicks, but I just think they're going to get swarmed at the weekend. So They're so clever, Arsenal. The movement, the little passes, the reverse passes, the overlaps. Like it, it, It's great to watch. I mean, Arteta is doing a fantastic job as much as we, well, I've slammed him in the past. But he is. They Like I say, they're just a lovely football team. And I agree with Johnny. They have to play their game, but Tottenham have to do everything they can to disrupt that. Is there going to be a man marker on Erdegaard? You know, is there going to be something up the sleeve of Antonio Conte that gets him into the game? I mean, ultimately, you do have a chance with Harry Kane up front. I mean, Arsenal fans have been stung by him before in games where Tottenham weren't particularly great. Is he the great leveller in this match, going for a record as well? A huge goal for him in his career and a huge goal for the club if he gets it. I still think it's a tough fixture. The Arsenal fans won't be looking forward to it as much as we would say like they are favourites. If Tottenham can sit deep, defend well, keep the spaces closed, if they can play well on the counter, they've hurt a lot of better teams than them. They just need that day. So in front of your home fans needing a result, Antonio Conte versus Arteta on the touchline, that's the battle I was really referring to. It could be, you know, the, be the perfect storm that provides a, a negative result for Arsenal. They just don't want to see that happen, obviously, in terms of the title race. Maybe we all want to see, you know, do we want to see City close the gap? No, we don't. We want Arsenal to win. We want Arsenal to win. Probably, for me, a more intriguing football match than the Manchester derby in some ways. I think we're going to find out a lot about these two teams, maybe more about these two teams than we would about the others, the other two in the Manchester derby. Because I think if Tottenham lose badly, it could start, you know, the snowball effect that, that leads to Antonio Conte leaving could be massive for their football club as a whole. And obviously, if Arsenal are beaten, even if it's cheaply, it could unravel their, their title chances. So I'm most intrigued by that. It's going to be good to react to it on Monday. What's your predictions? Tom Clark? Arsenal win. Gregor? Yeah, I think Arsenal win as well. He's just copying me today, isn't he? Johnny? <laughs> I think Arsenal win and win reasonably well. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to see... a. Uh, like a 4-0 Arsenal Ooh, you know, I'd, oh you're really you are really on oh, the turn with Tottenham fans this would, season aren't it, you it would be sensational for Antonio Conte to, to just to listen to him after that <laughs> but I think it will I think it will be quite a tight game and I don't think it will be a particularly pretty game look for me again red cards make a difference it's one of those fixtures I think Tottenham will be the aggressors though this time around I think if there is to be a red card it's more likely to be a Spurs player I think Arsenal win it but again, it'll be tight and it'll be 2-1. Eddie and Ketty a winner. We'll know a lot more about Arsenal in the next couple of weeks. They've got Manchester United after that and then uh, City in the, in the FA Cup and then they've got City uh, in the middle of Feb. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So for a lot of teams in the next month, we're going you know, to learn a lot about what's, what their season's, how their season's going to take shape. Listen, before we go, there is something that I wanted to bring up with you guys. I think it's important that we mark the retirement of Gareth Bale at the age of 33 years old. It's been a glittering career. He's his nation's most capped male player. He's the record men's goal scorer. Of course, he was integral to helping Wales to a European Championship semi-final in 2016. Their first World Cup since 1958. That just came at the end of 2022 in Qatar. Twice named Football of the Year in England while at Spurs in 2011 and 2013. Moved to Real Madrid for a then world record fee of more than £80 million in 2013. During his time in the Spanish capital, Bale helped Real 
win three league titles, five Champions League titles. That's a number no British player has matched. Uh, along with three club World Cups, three UEFA Super Cups, a Spanish Cup. He won the MLS Cup in his short spell with LAFC as well. But he has had a huge impact, Johnny, for Welsh football. Um, what, what do you think his legacy will be? I think he's moved Welsh football to a, a, another plane. I think he's given Welsh fans the memories of their lives. And he will go down, I think, as their favourite because he seems to have connected with his people a little bit more than, let's say, Ryan Giggs ever did. And he'll 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 be a towering figure dominating the, the sort of conversations of Welsh fans probably forever. I mean, he he is, as he, as he set out to be, the Welsh icon. I think it's when you go outside of that and try and decipher his legacy in, in the wider game, it gets a bit more tricky. But he set out on a mission to, to do everything he could for his country and he succeeded in that. What do you think, Gregor? Um, when I think of Bale, I just want to think back to the young Gareth Bale. The guy who was whipping in free kicks and playing in the championship like he was playing against a bunch of school kids. He was so quick. His speed. His speed. The skinny Gareth Bale. <laughs> he got too bulky. <laughs> the I one, still you know, think he's quite skinny, but yeah, go ahead. Uh, uh, his speed. It's his speed I just always remember. He's blistering speed. And, you know, there are the goals, the iconic ones again, when he tore apart Mike on uh, for Spurs against Inter Milan. The one where he ran off the pitch against Barcelona and kind of like you know ridiculous. Yeah, overhead but, kick versus Liverpool yeah. Champions League. Final. No, but it's the speed. It's all. For oh, Gareth I see. Bale, You're just saying for, on for the me, speed. I know there's moments like yeah, yeah, I was yeah. reading. He scored 21 goals in 12-13, which is his, you know his best campaign for Spurs. Nine nine were outside the penalty box. Like he scored some worldly goals in that that season in the Premier League. But for me, Gareth Bale, I want to remember the speed because it was absolutely thrilling to watch yeah. when you see someone who's so powerful running with the ball and he was a young left back it was like what are you doing <laughs> what are you doing how you how, you know how a 16 17 year old kid could affect a game from left back it was extraordinary and then as I say it gets more complicated when you look to Real Madrid but I want to remember the Gareth Bale the younger Gareth Bale and his power and pace and how thrilling he was to watch similar to Gregor but a different different memory is for me that Tottenham season that's the one I'll remember it, it, those moments, but in different different types. Yes, the speed was incredible, but those. I think there was a goal against West Ham. Yeah, that stands out for me. Where the top, I think it was a very niggly game. Tottenham needed to win, and it was the kind of game that football fans of my generation, Tottenham, always cock it up in those yeah. games. And he kind of picked up the ball. I think he got fouled a couple of times, maybe in the build-up. Picked up the ball and just goes a few touches, bang, top corner, and that was like Andre Villas Boas season. And that that game, that goal for me signified Gareth Bale moving from being a really good player, mm. excellent player to like one of the best in the world as in just give it to Gareth yeah, exactly. like just give it to Gareth like yeah. he became one of those players that you were like just give him the ball mm. yeah. you win the game just give this guy the ball the way he struck the ball yeah like as you say you give him half a yard outside the penalty box and it was like boom goal yeah. corner. I do wonder whether it comes back to your excellent question Hugh and I'm very glad that you phrased it in the way that you did rather than talking about the greatest type thing because I think that's something that he's been tarred with so much because of the whole... That's his next question. Yeah, I, just, I was just about to say, just delete that final question. <laughs> Damn, it. Damn it, I thought we were having a really sophisticated debate. No, but I think your choice of the term legacy is a really fascinating one. Um, and I'd be interested in Johnny's thoughts on this, because I wonder with all that he won at Madrid, all those moments, those incredible moments, and sometimes he literally did win the game from them. It wasn't quite give it to Gareth, it was almost begrudgingly, fine, should we give Gareth a go? And then, he'll, then he produced a moment of brilliance. I do wonder whether legacy-wise, future British players with the dominance of the Premier League might look 
if there's an opportunity to move to Europe and might think, well, Gareth Bale was A, amazing, and B, won the lot, and still everyone said he was a bit crap, so why am I going to bother? I wonder whether that'll be a legacy of his in terms of British players, great, great British players. When the when the opportunity comes in your mid-20s to go to Madrid or Barcelona, might think, actually, sod it, I'll wait for an offer from Man City. Yeah, I mean, sorry to be slightly nuggety and boring, but I just think the Premier League is getting so big that, that the moving to Real Madrid will not be the thing it used to be in the future anyway. But I know what you mean, Tom. I think it would make players think twice because he, ne- he was never embraced the way that he would have been had he stayed or he did he move, let's say, to Man City, Man United. And been, I think he'd have been embraced in an uncomplicated way there, whereas it's complicated for him in Madrid and I'm not going to pretend to fully understand it because I wasn't there but I was at those Champions League finals the one in Kiev and the one in Lisbon that he won with incredible feats and it did make you think my god if you did that for a, a British club you'd, you'd, you'd have a statue but he didn't get that at Real Madrid I, I do think Bale falls into the category of that modern football modern football <laughs> fan on social media where it's such a strange while they're playing while they're still on a big contract that you want them to get off so you can buy the next new star, you, you're so negative about them. You just want them to leave. Eden Hazard, for example, you know, or whoever. You know, they're just desperate to get this player out of their club. And when they do leave, they go, you were brilliant. Fair play. Fair play to you. Now, you, now you've, you know, the vitriol suddenly just, it's okay for them to just rewrite the way that they spoke about it. It's not just him. We've had it with managers. We've just seen a manager go to a Premier League club and all the fans forget how they treated him when they wanted him out and just be like, what a legend you were. You know, it's just like one of those strange things that happens in modern football now where we're so vitriolic, but then when it comes to an end, when that player retires, you can sit back and then say, oh, actually, yeah, you were great. And there's been a lot of that this week. But we should also look at what that did to Gareth Bale's love of football. Mm. Like, uh, yeah. always, my mind always goes back to the... The interview, I think, was with Michael Calvin in BT, BT Sport documentary, and it was remarkable to hear a footballer saying, sitting like in Real Madrid, Real Madrid's training ground, saying, "Yeah, like I've I've lost a little bit of that that thing I had as a kid," and that's what he, that's what almost defined him in those early years. I'm talking about when they were skinny, but skinny Gareth Bale, blistering past people with like joy, a look of joy, and and it gave everyone in the stands that feeling as well. Real Madrid took that away, and I'm not saying it's it's their fault, but it happened, and like. I think that's a little bit sad, actually. Yeah, but for me, he should have left Real Madrid two or three years Maybe, sooner. Maybe he saw his powers waning, too. Yeah, I think he a, knew such, that. Such a big deal, such a big contract. You know, one of the biggest that we've ever seen in football. I think it was €600,000 a week. It's a very difficult thing to look or walk away from when you want to take care of your family. It is, as well. And also the opportunity to be at Real Madrid. I remember reading an article, I can't remember at the time, but it was kind of, you never leave Madrid. Because once you leave Madrid, where are you going from there? And I, but I think we are having a very interesting conversation and that's why I'm so pleased it's not centred around is he the greatest because he ended up being a bit like Brexit, didn't he, Gareth Bale, in terms of the, how divisive. He was either the greatest modern player of all time and, oh my God, how can you not say that? How can you say that? Look what he won at Real Madrid. Or he was a lazy, lazy waste of space yeah, who played too much golf. golf. Yeah. Like it, There was no middle ground. And as I say, Gregor makes a really interesting point and Hugh, you make an interesting point about legacy, what that means for modern football because you can only be those two people until you retire and then you're a legend, as you say, Hugh. But that is something that we, perhaps the media, should also keep in mind when it comes to superstar footballers in the next 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah, and I think just finally, and I agree with you, Tom, but I think just finally it's important to mention in terms of legacy what he did for Welsh football, what he's done for football in a country that loved rugby, 
that may, that still loves rugby still gets a bigger crowd for the international rugby team than it does for the international football team. But um, for football fans in Wales, they can dream. And I think for future generations of Welsh players, the bar is has been set. Not in terms of him as an individual. I think it would be incredibly difficult for a player from any country to reach his level and his level of achievement in particular. But when I mean in, in terms of can this national team get to tournaments? You know, can we go and be the underdogs and get results against nations where it's perceived that, that we shouldn't? Well, yes, we can. I think the mentality and the culture has changed, crucially changed for Welsh football going forward. So um, we won't be as surprised when they get to a European Championship in the future, uh, maybe even a World Cup in the future, simply because of the era that Gareth Bale played in. I think as much as you want to talk about Aaron Ramsey and... and the likes of Joe Allen, um, Ben Davis as well. I think Gareth Bale and the way that he was able to deliver them those key moments will always be remembered as the player that was able to elevate the status. But I just think in the future, inspired by Gareth Bale, there will be better players on the whole um, and that Welsh squad will be stronger and you'll see the legacy of that in 10, 15, 20 years' time and hopefully those players can build on, on what Gareth Bale started. So uh, for me, an absolutely incredible player, I'd say he was the best British player of my lifetime. I was born in 86, all right? So of my lifetime, I'd say he pips Wayne Rooney. You can have that debate as much as you want to. You can read about it on the Times app right now. So do check it out wherever you get your apps from. A reminder, if you want to subscribe to the game, it's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. And make sure you pick up a paper on Sunday or Monday as we look back at what will be a big weekend in the Premier League. We'll have the podcast with you Monday afternoon. Um, so make sure you join us for that as well enjoy your weekends we'll see you soon small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right because Rustoleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustoleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.